Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Tim McLaughlin, CEO and co-founder of GoTab, a restaurant commerce platform that's raised $26 million in funding. Tim, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Not a problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe a bit more about your background? Sure. My name is Tim McLaughlin. I co-founded GoTab in 2016, albeit as I was extracting myself from my prior company. My background's really diverse. I'm a mechanical engineer by degree, software developer by practice, and I've started a total of seven companies. Some successfully exited, some shut down, and some still ongoing. What were some of those lessons you've learned from the ones that shut down? I'm not Elon Musk. I don't think you can run multiple companies. I think very few people can run multiple companies at the same time. I say that even as I own multiple companies, but I don't run them. So I guess the lesson for myself was, you know, stay focused and don't get too distracted with the shiny new objects. When I was looking at your LinkedIn, I saw one was a restaurant and a, and a brewing company. What was that like? I'm sure that was a fun business to run. It is, in fact, fun. My wife owns them. I co-founded them with another couple and my wife. And then when I decided to go back into technology, software and start GoTab, my wife took over the two breweries. So she still owns those and runs them. And I mostly just have opinions on them, which she also tries to ignore those opinions as much as she can. Was that hard working closely with your wife when you were in the business? You know, my wife's an engineer too. So working may be one of the easiest things we do together. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So yeah, I've been married for over 25 years, but no, working's never been a real, you know, one of our challenges. When it comes to your inspiration as a founder and as an entrepreneur, Are there any founders that really come to mind that have inspired you along the way? I mean, I think there's always the formulaic, you know, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, although I will say, I probably shouldn't say it publicly, but earlier Elon Musk was much more inspiring than I would say current Elon Musk is, in my opinion. Not that he doesn't do great things, but I don't need all the other stuff with it. So yeah, I'm generally inspired by people when they're innovating and they're changing the world. And so, yes, I personally love the early stages of, of a business, of product building. Any founders that you've personally had experience working with or just encountered maybe in the local tech scene there or just throughout your career? Unfortunately, I came to this through a very different path because when I graduated from college, I wanted to go into robotics. Turns out robotics when I graduated from college wasn't a thing. So I ended up going into software consulting instead. And so I, I started off in the services industry, which is a very different mindset. And I mean, I I worked with a ton of great people. And in fact, a lot of those people work with me again in GoTab, but I didn't really have a sort of a startup mentor, if you will. What about books for inspiration? So the way we like to frame this, we got this from an author called or named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? I read a lot of books. In fact, one problem with reading a lot of books is I actually also forget all the books that I read and they just you know, kind of meld their way into my brain, but I can no longer remember what it was or you know, cite where the impact came from. I do like Four Steps to Epiphany was a pretty influential book on product development, although some people might think it's kind of nerdy. 
a lot of the standard business books, a lot of the standard negotiating books. But yeah, I'd, I'd pay a lot of attention to product development, although in a very pragmatic sense, like I'm not big on product development processes and you know, lots of overhead and things like that. But staying close to the client, staying close to the customer was you know, one of the essential portions of that. And then there's another heavily influential book. I'm trying to remember what it was called in the professional services industry around you know, how to develop a culture. And uh, I can't remember the name of the book because it's probably been 10 years, but it had a ton of impact on you know, even how I affected my own business, which is services at the time, a couple hundred people. What about any personal books that you know, aren't in the business world that have had a big influence on you? Well, unfortunately, when I cite books, it's always the most recent ones that I'm reading and never the ones that I read maybe 20 years ago that had a huge impact. Currently, I'm reading a lot of anthropology or evolutionary anthropology. So I, I, some books that recently I enjoyed was a book called Drunk. It was about how the phenomena of culture wrapping themselves around intoxicants, in particular alcohol, but other intoxicants by a professor at a University of Vancouver. There's another one I enjoyed called Ritual. Uh, these are all almost all humorously kind of anti-technology book. So I'm a fan of philosophy as well. So like Max Weber, some of his writings were, were pretty influential around sociology and how technology causes the reduction of identity within a culture. So I would actually recommend there's a podcast called Philosophize This, summarizes uh, Max Weber's stuff very well. Nice. I'll have to link to that in the show notes. And I, I found the drunk book. I think it's drunk, how we sipped, danced, and stumbled our way to civilization. Is that it? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty <laughs> compelling argument. I mean, certainly, you know, it's not perfect, but there's some interesting anecdotes around, you know, I mean, alcohol is a technology, right? And the question always of evolution is like, if something's bad for you, like alcohol, why would it persist or why would it become such a prominent part of society? And his sort of basic tenet is, well, it actually is good for society. Um, it may be bad for you medically, but it's a pretty important technology for building larger civilizations. Who authored it? Is this uh, Anheuser-Busch? <laughs> uh, humorously, <laughs> I did see the guy present at the craft beer convention, but I read his book before then. Let's switch gears now. Let's dive deeper into the company. How we like to start this portion of the podcast is really focusing on the problem. What problem does GoTab solve? Guest experience is really what we are primarily focused on. It's expanded into operator experience. So like I said, my first business was actually e-commerce and content management consulting company. So originally I wrote a product to do that. Eventually as we evolved in my first company, we ended up deploying other people's products as well. So wrapping services around larger enterprise systems. Then I owned these two restaurants and I quickly learned just how broken restaurant technology is. It's all closed. It's all proprietary. I mean, as an architecture and data, it's all proprietary, massive lock-in, no portability, hardware lock-in. It's totally crazy. So we started originally with the, hey, let's make it so guests don't have to do the things they don't want to do in restaurants, aka pay, split, the on-fun stuff, not ordering and tasting stuff, not talking to great service staff, but taking away the not fun stuff. So transactional stuff, as I call it. And then that expanded into, okay, great. So if we give guests full control, which is actually, this is something a lot of people in the restaurant industry are afraid of, is if you guess, give the guests full control, then they're going to create all this chaos for our kitchen or factory, if you will. And that was true. We actually created a ton of problems in the bars and the kitchens because we would actually take more orders than they'd ever taken before at the same time. So then we ended up becoming an operational tool to fulfill the 
I'd say it like keeping the promises that we already made to the guests. So, and do you think of like taking orders or, or setting expectations, and then you need to keep those, fulfill those expectations. So we end up running the whole kitchens. We do them very unusual way. And then we ultimately have to manage inventory and get into accounting. And of course we have to do all those things in an unusual way, because that's just how we are. We do have a lot of uh, esoteric, I wouldn't say esoteric, they're incredibly practical capabilities, but they don't really exist in restaurant technology and other systems. When I look at the suite of products and the features and the capabilities you have, I feel like some of those I've seen just standalone companies where they say, this is it, this is you know what we're going to focus on and, and we're going to build purpose-built software for this specific problem. How have you approached deciding what you're going to build into the product? Because it seems like it's it's very advanced and there's a lot there. Yeah, you're correct. We have gone really, really, really deep in the areas of function where we focus. Just to be clear, those areas are commerce, meaning you're shopping and you're buying operations as in like, okay, so now I either have to make it or put it in boxes or, or both uh, or bags. And then the last part is logistics. And in the restaurant space, actually, none of the technologies do anything pertaining to logistics that's ultimately delegated to a whole nother platforms. And there's really no technology that handles on-premise logistics. I mean, getting products to seats or getting it to rooms or getting it to you know, patios or whatever. And that's because most people or most restaurant technologies always not cared about the cost of labor. So running things to tables is really in their mind or used to be a negligible cost. So coming back to your question, we think of it as commerce operations and fulfillment or commerce operations and logistics are the things that we do. And I say this because yes, that is a lot of scope, especially when we're going really deep on operations and logistics where everybody else kind of ignores it. So in doing so, we had to pick a bunch of things we don't do because I do believe in focus, as I said earlier, if you look at a typical restaurant POS starting back in like the ancient days of like Micros or NCR Aloha, 30 year old products or beyond that at this point, they do everything. They track your time, they do inventory they or POS. They don't do anything by modern standards well, but they do it. And the reason was, is because they ran everything on one computer in the restaurant. There was only one computer. And so therefore they had to do everything that had to do with computers in that one product. And similarly, products like Square and Toast do the exact same thing. They try to do everything. They're going to do time tracking. They're going to do payroll. They're going to do, you know, all kinds of stuff. My background is actually enterprise software. And in enterprise, there's a very clear path for best of breed. And GoTab's designed as a best of breed open API product so that all the companies who do labor management or payroll or cost of goods management or deeper inventory functionality or warehouse management, those can all couple up very nicely with ours. And that, that was a, a conscious decision. Like, let's focus on these areas of operations where we think we cannot separate the systems and let's, where there's clear delineation or clear architectural lines of data, let's let our partners be successful with us. And so we have, you know, about a hundred partners now and ever growing through an extensive API, which, which is in fact open, which is also unusual in our space. Now I was looking at some of the different products and I see you have the, the pocket POS there. So that is a, a big question I want to ask. You know, whenever I go to Europe, I'm just joyed by the fact that I'm not handing them my credit card. They disappear, they come back. I don't have to deal with that. When I'm in Europe, they come to the table, they charge it, it's done. It's way fast. Yep. You're not sitting there for 15 minutes waiting. Why in the United States at most restaurants do we still have to suffer through this? Because that 15 minutes you're waiting for the check to get out of there, 
it's bad for me as the consumer in the restaurant and it can't be good for the restaurant with all the time it takes and us filling those seats. How can we haven't changed that? I think that I'm going to answer the question with an analogy. In the United States, we have a really robust wired infrastructure. And what I mean by that is like a telco wired infrastructure. If you go to Africa, they actually have no copper wires because they do everything in, in wireless. And the reason is, is because they never had the money or the wherewithal or really the systems to drop, you know, these big, you know, iron maidens across the country and build that infrastructure. I think in restaurants in the US, there's been a lot of, you know, 30 year old capital expenditures on these systems and they really don't want to move them. And believe it or not, here, here's something for maybe there's some nerds in the audience. Some of these POSs run on Microsoft DOS. That's how old they are. They run on Microsoft DOS or Windows 98, and they're still in use today. For real. For real. I'm not going to name the ones that are out there that actually have wider distribution, uh, but they do. And one thing that's not really well understood is the POS is kind of the ERP for a restaurant. Uh, and my background is enterprise companies. And anybody who has worked with an enterprise business knows that like you don't rip and replace ERPs. That's like an open heart surgery. So as a general rule in restaurants, they really don't want to change these systems out. They believe that changing them out could destroy the whole business, could make them you know, not be successful. Uh, and then they're just sort of maintaining these old systems. So I would say the reason you see this in Europe is they never really adopted the older generation of POSs. And so in some sense, they kind of skipped over to the newer generation, similar to the telco industry. But there's yet, yeah, you know, obviously there's a newer generation coming out in the US, like the pocket POS and the future evolution of the pocket POS is you get rid of that whole folio and a card reader and everything just happens on the phone because the front part of the pocket POS is just a phone. And even further, you know, you can do all the same stuff on your own phone. So you can run a full POS, take credit cards, everything on an iPhone or an Android phone. So, which humorously, I actually saw when I was in Greece a year ago is all the servers were doing all their order entry onto their own personal phones, which wouldn't apply in the United States either. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> no, I like long answers. And yeah, I want to know the answer to that. Because every time I'm sitting at a restaurant, just wondering like, why? But there's, no one's winning in this situation. So appreciate the, uh, the in-depth response there. When it sure. comes to growth and adoption, are there any metrics that you can share that highlight some of the growth that you're seeing today? Well, a cool one, if nothing else, because we get to do fun stuff in our industry is we just opened a restaurant slash entertainment slash sports bar place for Tiger Woods and Justin Timberlake in New York City yesterday. Yeah, called T-Squared. So that was kind of fun. But on the metrics, we generally grow, we're expecting to grow about another 100 to 200% this year. We grow an absurd you know, amounts from 2020 to and through. But our expected future path is going to be like, probably between 100 and 300% year on year. And one thing that's actually very confusing, I think to a lot of people when they talk to GoTab is they always think, and I think maybe DoorDash trained everybody this, they always think that we care a lot about how many locations we have, like how many restaurants we have. And when we actually don't, we care about the size and scale and volume and profitability of our clients more than say a DoorDash does because we don't have all these minimum fees. And in fact, the way our financials are set up, we our operators make us more money if they make more money. So in fact, if I can go win a $30 million restaurant like this, you know, I don't know what T-squared will end up being in New York City. It's actually a lot better for us as a business. And we can also build some really rich 
functionality for those operators to create a bespoke experience that they want to have. They don't just want commodity experiences. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. When it comes to the ICP, who is that ICP? Is it Ruth's Chris Steakhouse? I see you have them on the site. I see Hilton. Is is that the ICP, like the big enterprise, or is it you know mid market or just the solo operators? Who do you consider that kind of poor customer that you want more of? Our ICP, the people our salespeople go after, are large, high volume establishments. Like for example, Maui Brewing will see eight thousand people, eight thousand guests come through one restaurant in a week which is a pretty high volume. So that is our ideal customer. That doesn't mean that a small casual, you know, restaurant that has 40 seats doesn't want to use our pocket POS. It works just great for that. But at that point, if you're doing classic full service, you're not leveraging any technology. I mean, you, you don't want to use easy tech. We have all these unusual features that unless you've been to a go to that restaurant, you've never seen. At that point, it really just becomes a, hey, do you like our interface better? And are we cost competitive or, or cheaper or lower cost uh, than, say, Toaster Square? And at that point, that's fine, but it's not as much of a feature battle in that case because you do get restaurants who, strangely, and it, it kind of totally perplexes me, but they don't want the technology to help them. Whereas when you get into these bigger restaurants, they have no choice in the new labor market but to leverage all of our technology because they get into such resource binds that they really need the software to do a lot for them. And those are the ones where we, not only we win there, we stay there, they love us, they make lots of money thanks to us, and we make money because you know, we make money when they do. And so that, that's our ICP, but you know, that's not saying that some standard you know, restaurant that doesn't want to leverage technology couldn't use our tech just as well. When it comes to the market category, it almost sounds like this is a, like a restaurant OS or a restaurant operating system. Is that how you think about it? Or is it restaurant commerce? What's that market category? Well, the, unfortunately, in the restaurant world, they think of it as a point of sale because point of sales become kind of the catch-all for, for restaurants. Most restaurant technology, and I could actually give you some really large names, they spend zero effort or don't even have technology to run the kitchens. So actually, here's a really funny example for you. Since I'll pick on them, they're easy. They're the biggest new guys. Toast. Toast is you know a pretty prevalent system. I know a lot of restaurants that are buying Toast and aren't even using their kitchen operations. They're actually buying another product to run the kitchen, which is to me just such a, it kind of misses the point because one of the core tenants we have is that the guests want to know what's going on in the kitchen, meaning like how long is my hamburger or pizza or whatever going to take. And in order to do that, you have to have end-to-end -end visibility in your product pipeline. So there's just this perpetuation of old paradigms of like, you know, go buy a POS, go buy a KDS, and glue them together badly, to be honest, in the restaurant industry. And people just don't really know what's possible. As far as our product, I would say actually operations is one of the most important parts of our product. And unfortunately, only the best of the best operators realize how great of efficiency and experience they can get out of a system that they actually leverage it. And the one thing I will leave for you 
is just as a touchstone, we did a quick analysis of our clients and said, what are their operating costs for labor? And there's a bunch of different variables that drive into that, but restaurants typically try to stay under 30% of their revenue is spent on labor. And our restaurants on average have a 22% labor cost, which is you know basically 25% below the industry norm, which is a pretty spectacular statistic because most restaurants struggle to stay below that 30% labor cost. And our clients are, are not, you know, not just at it, they're actually crushing it, which means they're much more profitable. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Now, as I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised $26 million to date. What would you say you've learned about fundraising throughout this journey? I don't terribly love it. <laughs> uh, I, it's not my favorite way to spend time. My favorite way to spend time is talking to clients, working on the product, watching you know operations, and, and really just learning how we could do make a better product. Fundraising is probably the, the least fun way to spend my day for me. One thing that I see a lot in the media, and I'm, I'm sure you see it too, is entrepreneurship, founding companies, especially venture-backed companies, seems to be really glamorized. And it looks so sexy and cool and fun, but as I'm sure you've experienced and a lot of the founders that I talk to, behind the scenes, that's not the case. There's a lot of low points. There's a lot of pain. Can you tell us about some of those specific low points that you've experienced and really just how you navigated those low points? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been through a lot Many of those, my stories around uh, challenges were outside of GoTab. My first company, as I mentioned, was a services company, and we grew pretty quickly. This is you know a long time ago now, but we had a single account, single client that that unfortunately grew so quickly that they became sixty percent of our revenue, which was awesome because it was a ton of revenue that was happening. Just they they loved what we did. The problem is that they got a new CEO who basically overnight turned off outsourcing. So we had 60% of our revenue that was previously climbing, you know, quickly got shut off. So that was a really tough experience. You know, I had to put a bunch of my money back into the company and then kind of like believe in the fact that we could get this company back to profitable. And we were a bootstrap company. So we didn't have venture money. We didn't have any of that stuff. There was really no cushion except for our own lines of credit. So we managed to do that. It was hard, but you know, I would say, you know, we had a 10 year run on that company and it was a, you know, probably a two or three dip roller coaster where the bottoms of the roller coaster were pretty severe, uh, you know, borrowing against your house and that kind of thing. So yeah, it is definitely not all glamorous <laughs> and I've been through a lot of them. So on the restaurants, everything ends up costing twice as much as you think. And in the product space, everything takes twice as long as you think it's going to take as well. On the GoTab side, you know, it took us, frankly, about two years to finally get what we consider product market fit. And then we did get product market fit. So we started in 2016. I was extracting myself from my prior company. My co-founder was full-time. And by 2018, the funny thing about GoTab is what was originally our core product was QR ordering to table. Yes, I know everybody thinks QR ordering to table was invented in COVID, but it wasn't. It was actually invented in predominantly in Asia. And we ripped off the ideas that we were seeing happen in Asia and said, hey, we can adapt this to the United States. And in 2018, we rolled out a QR ordering to table for my second restaurant just to try it to see if you know, there was any market for it, and how consumers liked it. Turns out consumers really liked it. And we, we were really kind of surprised. And that was when we finally realized, oh shit, there's actually a product market fit here. Consumers want this. Although then we got basically punched in the face by the industry, which was consumers may want it, 
but restaurant operators don't. And so for 2018 to 2020, you know, we kept selling against a, a really serious cultural headwind. And uh, I think we realistically or pragmatically really got nobody over the line in terms of adopting our QR ordering platform until COVID hit. I mean, we've got a couple of small ones and, and, and whatnot, but COVID hit and all the people who told us, you know, this is the dumbest thing I ever thought I ever heard in 2019 called us back in 2020. And all of a sudden we went from being total morons to geniuses. So uh, I guess context is everything. Why were restaurants so resistant to that? You know, as a consumer sitting at a restaurant, whenever I see that option, I'm stoked because I know it's about to be a much more seamless, you know, digital experience, which I've come to expect in the online world. And I, I like when that bleeds over into the, the physical world. So it seems obvious that consumers would like it. Why wouldn't the restaurants like it? Like, obviously they want happy customers. I would guess that there's a big time savings for the staff. Is it about tips? Is that the concern or what is that concern? A lot of it's honestly just perception. Remember pre-COVID, there were a lot more people working in restaurants. Uh, labor was quite cheap. I mean, labor costs in restaurants have probably more than doubled on average since COVID. So labor was quite cheap. There's a lot of financial sort of gaming that happens in the industry. And so they would use tips to cover salaries and, and whatnot. And a lot of that stuff's been eliminated or is getting eliminated. So restaurants are having to get efficient. And I probably didn't mention my brother's a, a PhD economist, works at a think tank. So I unfortunately read a lot of economic books too. So the challenge is that the structure of restaurants is that the non-performing restaurants, the a lot of the cost burden was actually borne by the employees and not the owners. And the reason is, is because in the way restaurants work is if you show up to work and it's a crappy business night, you might go home with an effective, you know, $5 an hour. In theory, they're supposed to fix that, but they don't in plenty of places. So there was that incentive. And then the other thing is that restaurateurs uh, frequently believe that the guests come to talk to them. And that's probably true somewhat in part, but the reality is a lot of guests come to talk to their friends and eat the food and drink that is offered there. And so there's just this notion of that they want to interact with the server or staff. And sometimes they absolutely do. But there's lots of times where if you just want another Pilsner or you just want your check, you really don't. And so that, that was just a cultural standard before COVID. And I think now the newer generation like yourself and a lot of people are like, look, you know, getting a check handed to me is not an experience. That's actually just annoying. <laughs> Can it just go away? And you see that now more, but there's still a nostalgia for, you know, the old way of doing things. And that's nostalgia is very prevalent in restaurants. Yeah, I can see that at like higher end restaurants where you want to have that, you know, white glove kind of service or that higher end experience where you kind of you know, want to interact with these people. But if it's lunchtime, you have you know, 30 minutes before your next meeting, you don't want that. You just want to pay your check and, and, and get out of there. So I, I can see that it probably varies from restaurant to restaurant too. Yeah, correct. And I would argue even in the higher end restaurants, there's nobody who says that, you know, getting handed a bill is a fun part of the experience. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's the worst part. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, from my conversations with 500 plus founders so far, what they've told me is they can you know, really trace back the company's success to a few pivotal moments, sometimes one pivotal moment. Does a specific pivotal moment come to mind for you or a specific turning point where it seemed like it really changed the trajectory of the company? Yeah. I mean, so there's the internal ones, there's the external ones. The internal one was when 
we launched my second restaurant at using GoTap QRs for ordering drinks. And we went from like really kind of struggling to find something that would meet the needs of consumers and operators. So that experience in 2018 was very pivotal for us. The other one, which was unfortunate culturally, but it just changed everything in restaurants is COVID. COVID was, uh, you know, forced restaurants to pay more. It forced restaurants to get efficient. It forced restaurants, frankly, it forced a lot of restaurants to close down who weren't efficient. And so I think it basically accelerated the U.S. adoption of QR by probably three to five years virtually overnight. So the thing that we were doing, which you know was largely, you know, kind of made fun of, honestly, became something that, you know, not only nerdy idiots who thought that, you know, 90s QR technology was was cool. Now, let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? Hmm. I was thinking about this the other day. I think our challenge has always been we want to look forward and kind of work our way backward into how restaurants should operate. Like, you know, fast forward 10 years, how should they operate? And then say, okay, well, how do we adapt that to how people want to or already do operate? I'm not sure that all the time that that was the right approach. And so I don't know, you know, hindsight, I'm not sure hindsight's 2020 because sometimes hindsight neglects a lot of the details that occurred back then. And there's a reason why you, you chose the path. But so for example, the pocket POS, I find it kind of interesting that we rolled that out because I would have thought we'd never have to do it. And so it's been very well received. People really like it. It's awesome. I just find it kind of interesting that you have to send a server around the table with a with a phone to take orders still. I just would have thought that, you know, we would be doing it a little differently. But, you know, maybe hindsight's twenty twenty, or maybe I'm just revising my own history. I'm not sure. <laughs> Always hard to know. Yeah. Now let's talk about the future and this will be our final question. So can you paint a picture for us on that three to five year vision? Yeah. Our vision is that payment should disappear meaning that you should really not have to spend time thinking about payments as a consumer, which it sounds like it's not much different from reality, but it is quite different. So for example, if you were to go to T-Square, that place we were just talking about in New York City, and you were to basically go in, maybe you play a game of golf in the golf suite, maybe you are become a member, which gives you discounts on some things, and maybe you're paying for stuff for some other people and maybe you buy some retail. And a typical restaurant or food hall, actually a food hall is even a better example. And a typical food hall, if you walked in, you wanted to order three things from three separate businesses, you actually would have to pay three separate times. That slows you down. It keeps you away from your table. So you actually don't even know if you're going to have a table when you come back. And overall, it costs everybody money and time. And it's just unpleasant. It, it just adds a friction and pain into something that otherwise should be fun. The same thing in the E-squared is like in a conventional model, you would pay for your game or you would make your reservation for your game, maybe on your phone. And then that wouldn't be the same payment as buying a cocktail. And that wouldn't be the same payment when you walk over to the system to buy, you know, a Tiger Woods t-shirt. And so all those separate transactions and or benefits uh, like I couldn't tell you how many times in restaurants where you can't even take the same digital gift card that you use for online ordering and use it in the store. Uh, in fact, most of them won't let you do that. So if you're in the restaurant, you couldn't use an online digital gift card. So all that's pain around payments and friction uh, is all the stuff that we see disappearing. 
So you as a consumer would have an identity. That identity may be provided by something you have or something you are. So maybe your phone or obviously Amazon's doing the handprint, but there's all kinds of ways to recognize who you are and then offer you the benefits of your status, membership, whatever it may be. I'm not necessarily a huge loyalty guy, but whatever that might be, whatever that status is. And then also including the circle of trust, like the people you want to be able to participate within that experience with you. So I'd say the biggest focus that GoTab does, it's different from say an Amazon or a DoorDash is we're really focused on on-premise experiences. And we feel like technology should be built to support that. So a lot of the stuff we do is around how do you make sure that that on-premise experience is really seamless and everything comes together at the right time. So while you're ordering these things out at your, you know, golf bay at T squared, how do we make sure that all the food actually hits your table, you know, on the third floor across, you know, a long distance from the kitchen at the same time and make sure that your cocktails all came out at the same time, even though they're ordered from separate devices by separate people on separate payment methods. So our whole, I guess we're doing the Arthur C. Clarke thing. We think that, you know, the best technology is invisible and magic. And that that's really what we want is we want all these things to disappear so you can enjoy the experience. So the server can enjoy the experience and talk with you about your golf game. That's ultimately the long goal in GoTap. Amazing. I love the vision. Tim, we'll have to wrap here since we are up on time. Before we do, if there's any founders listening in that just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Uh, since I'm not really a public personality, just, I'd say watch GoTab, you're going to see as much as anything on that. So watch us on LinkedIn or other channels. We publish stuff out there. Amazing. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Brett. Thank you for the time. Yeah, no problem. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 